Everybody. Welcome to We've Got Ward, a Doof Media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward, while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and this is my co-host, Scott Daly. God, man, not again. Blurble. Every time, I have to reset the thing, stick this thing into his brain. There. <clears throat> my co-host, Scott Daly. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wild Bo's world of heart band-aids and bringer Jesus and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, we finally wrap up Arc 19 Infrared with chapters 19.G and 19.Z. It's a double lewd week, Matt, as we first step into the head of Taylor Swift's biggest fan, Brian, who does what no one else (laughs) in this entire book has successfully been able to do, get through to Kenzie. Then we switch over to the Seamurg as she reverse cause and effect chains her way through a few different perspectives. The overall point is that the entire future of the world rests in the hands of Chris. And all the C- and the Seamurg has made sure that he's going to turn those hands into monster wings and fly, fly away, dooming us all. It's fucking great. It's great. It's, it's a deep cut there, Scott. <laughs> Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? I mean, I love them. Um, I, I always feel like it's a delightful treat when we get double interludes, even though I love Victoria so much. Like... It, it sounds like a, a backhanded thing to say, but just the Wildo interludes are always just like exceptionally fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and Brian m- missed the guy. Love him. This is a treat. We, I didn't know that I, I needed. Um, and of course, what seems to my eyes to be a Seamurg interlude is always uh, uh, foreboding as, as hell. So, yeah, it is. Um, there's a lot of foreboding in here, but, you know, I and we're going to talk about this a lot, but I left this week's chapters with a sense of absurd optimism and (laughs) you could call me naive and that would be fair but you know what i'm gonna embrace it because what's the worst that can happen you're just horribly disappointed well i mean if if you're doubtful then the only benefits that you get are the benefits of being i see what you're trying to do here and you're you're not saying it correctly okay (laughs) well anyway Uh, okay um let's talk about things let's 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 uh, let's move on yeah um so the the fan art contest is still going on everybody uh it closes up march 4th and the theme is acceptance please send us your acceptance themed parahumans or packed themed fan art by march 4th yeah and that's a week from the day this episode releases so you have exactly one week from right now to get that in um so plenty of time still can't wait to see but we've got a couple in already and they're very Very good. Yeah. Very good. All right. Let's get into these chapters. Uh, 19.G begins. And can I just say that I didn't realize how much I wanted a Brian interlude? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because during our post-show conversation we had last week, we streamed the show live with some of our patrons um, and we always kind of chat with them as we finish up the episode while I'm doing the editing. But we were talking a lot about Brian last week and I was kind of talking about how Brian didn't work for me as well as some of the other characters in Worm and and how I felt kind of bad about 
you know, how much I just kind of dismissed him because he's a good dude with a sad story. And I was just really dismissive of him in that book, at least relative to some of the other characters. And then I boot up the webpage on Sunday afternoon and who is it? But it's the Brian interlude. And I'm like, great. I have I have another chance. I have yeah. another opportunity with this character. Yeah. So now we'll do right by him, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you can officially put me in the absolutely love Brian category for, for forever now. Yeah. Um, me- the, this this if I was on the fence about Brian, this chapter seals it. I think I've always liked Brian. I just he's uh, he's sort of the Ron Weasley of the of the group where he's <laughs> he's fine. Right. But like you're not excited about him. Um, I guess that means what are you talking about book Ron Weasley or movie Ron Weasley? Because they did movie Ron Weasley dirty. <laughs> I, book I, Ron Weasley is way better. I guess I'm talking about book Ron Weasley. <laughs> I don't know. This is going in a direction that I don't want to be held responsible for. <laughs> um, so Brian, the character in this story, uh, is cleaning himself up in the washroom. And as he's doing so, his mind is picking out all these details of his surroundings and his thoughts and, and his person that will, I think, structure the tone and the main ideas of the chapter. Yeah. I, he thinks about how he used to be mostly normal and and only sometimes a cape and now it's the reverse and as he goes about things his actions are very deliberate and he's always uncomfortably aware of his surroundings yeah yeah i i really love this opening matt i love the the whole 75 25 civilian cape thing that brian demonstrates is is the the paradigm of his old life and how that has almost entirely reversed here um and and that that his skull face is the perfect symbol of that reversal um mm. I, I, like this, this this just reminded me, and I want to go on a little tangent here about how much the idea of cape life balance is presented all throughout the story through multiple lenses. I mean, the, the primary lens is through Victoria and her kind of wrestling with this idea of uh, th- this like original argument she had with Jessica at the very beginning of the story, which is like how much of your life should be committed to the cape stuff, how much should not be. And Victoria's like, basic belief that it can't not be like it has to be a big part of it it's just the way it works um Mm -hmm. but we've seen like we've seen her become more and more extreme in that regard as the the book has gone on but now we have the flock and then specifically brian in the flock that is almost that idea made literal right it's like they are reborn with the cape stuff put to the, the surface like that is that becomes who they are almost entirely. Um, and then I think just like the Titans as well represent that, like the Cape part of them got so big that they're literally giant people now with a little, little tiny human bit left in there. So, I mean, it's just like over and over again, we've seen this idea, this wrestle between parahuman and human um, in these characters through all different ways. There's different ways the book deals with this central concept. Yeah, I love that idea of the Titans being somebody who the the Cape side has taken over and they're they're giants. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a cool it's uh, a cool idea. Yeah, yeah. But I, to get back on topic, I, I love Brian's attention to the temperature of this room. I, I love that. Like he he calls the room inoffensively warm. Um, it's just or inoffensively room temperature rather. But the ice cold water hitting him on the face is still a relief to him, even though it's not really that hot here. And it's kind of like like he's living in this like like just kind of plain, like not anything's wrong existence, but he needs, he needs the, the shock of the coldness to like bring him out of just like 
moderateness, right? Like it, it's really interesting. And, and there's so many details here. His, his chemically textured curls, um, the cut on his lip, the, the, the cards he keeps in his belt that basically remind him of who he is, his non cape identity. He keeps on him at all times as like an anchor to who he is. It's just rich with this wonderful detail that I really, really liked. Yeah, he's, he's so uncomfortable and agitated at all times, and um, like like the the, the he he talks about like the 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 dam, the dam uh, building and everything. Like he's he's yeah, actually like yeah. annoyed. He's like annoyed at how normal it is. Even it, it's a really interesting kind of framing for this character, where you just you look, like even just reading the text, you're like, oh, he's it's it, he's so on edge about everything. He if, if there's nothing to be on edge about, he finds something to be on edge about. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I like this real. I mean, I really love this idea that um, he's basically always got his darkness on full blast, um, at least when he's alone, like he's he's washing up. But the entire room is flooded with his darkness and he he, he has to actively dissipate it just to observe like what the effect of natural light will be on his skin. Yeah. I mean, it really sells just how uncomfortable he is. Right. That like this is something he just does constantly now he's like needs to be constantly shrouded in this darkness um and i think one of the things he says that he repeats multiple times throughout this chapter is he just has this never-ending feeling like he just got back from a battlefield no matter what he was doing last he always has this perpetual like like tense like almost like the adrenaline is still pumping a little bit because i just got finished a huge destructive battle um and that's just the constant feeling so it kind of makes sense that his power being almost constantly on um like links to that yeah but it's i mean i think it's fascinating because it's not something that he's doing um i don't want to say on purpose because cl- clearly he knows he's doing it but like he doesn't think of it he doesn't think anything wrong with it right he's yeah, like yeah why shouldn't my entire environment be he, he's hiding all the time yeah basically yeah. by default now he's it's kind of like taylor with her bugs he's by default completely hiding and and there's there's a few times in the, in this chapter i think where he will like sort of notice that someone is there and then dismiss the darkness so they can see but um like by default he's just covering everything in darkness yeah i mean that's that's the great thing about this point of view is that you know except for this moment and then other moments where he's specifically dismissing it to help someone else. He seems entirely just unaware that the darkness is there Mm -hmm. because he can see through it and it's always there. So like his point of view doesn't point out the darkness unless it's specifically to help someone else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And that's really, I mean, it's like, it's really cool that the, the the detail in there, um, I, I just really like it. Yeah. So then he goes and he runs into Lisa and and Lisa says that she doesn't like Breakthrough's plan, which I think is a nice little bit of tension elevation that will lead into the next chapter. Yeah, it's like (laughs) it's really great because when Lisa says she doesn't like something, it's not just her being contrarian, right? I mean, she's probably got some shard shenanigan opinion feeding that like if Tattletail came to us and said, I love this plan. It's a great plan. You'd probably feel a little uh a little more secure in the plan, right? I think yeah. maybe just a little bit. And so this is the exact opposite of that. Right. I mean, she she knows things. She's demonstrated a kind of insight into everything that's going on where I would trust her gut or her information on on stuff like this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but of course, uh we don't learn why she doesn't like their plan. Like she doesn't say like I don't like it because they're doing this and that's going to mess up with, you know, in, in this predictable way. It's it's uh, uh Brian doesn't get to know that information and and thus neither do we. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So um, 
Lisa then sends Brian in to deal with Kinsey. And uh, we're just going to talk about this forever because this is just a perfectly set up situation, isn't it? Yep, yep, yep. The text is very subtle about pointing out how perfect it is, but but I think it is all in there in the text. So we have Brian. Brian's terrified of young girl tinkers with cheerful affects. Uh, it doesn't appear to be a fear that has been diluted by time or or worked out by confronting it. Mm-hmm. And now Brian has to go talk to um, her, uh, you know, a, a young tinker. Um, and and then on the flip side, uh, I think Kenzie's never gotten over alienating her dads and likely misses having that particular flavor of like strong, dependable presence in her life. And she also has very fresh pain surrounding death and loss. And Brian just has this very unique perspective from which to talk on that topic. So overall, just the two of them talking, it's just such a well put together idea. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's just like a geniusly constructed idea, like just from a storytelling perspective, doing this is just brilliant. Like, I wonder it's so genius. I wonder if it was planned from the beginning or just kind of inadvertently backed into like, you know, you can, you can imagine a construction of this chapter is like, all right, so we've decided that we're going to do a Kenzie focused interlude. We're going to do it from, from imp's perspective. Imp's going to be the point of view. And if I'm doing an imp interlude, I might as well like bring Brian back into it. And then you go, Oh shit. That, that means Brian and Kenzie. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. like you wonder, like it's one of those things that you, you wonder the writing um, method here um, where like, is the, are things just lining up perfectly or is it just like you've set characters up so much that you like we talked about this idea a lot, right, that you have so many balls in the air. You can like choose what to do with where. Yeah. And it's just like we brought Brian back into the story because it made sense to bring Brian back into the story in an imp- interlude. But then suddenly it also makes sense to have Brian be the one that deals with Kenzie. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I agree in the sense that it feels so perfect that it feels like it was set up intentionally but i also would not be surprised to learn that it was just serendipitous um either like it doesn't matter is the fun thing either way um, we get to enjoy this this delightful delightful thing Mm um uh before he goes in there though aisha is a shit to him about being good with kids uh, and the (laughs) the the the, uh, insinuation that he might actually have been good with kids and then lost that part of himself almost makes him panic um, uh, uh. you know, which, which kind of sucks. And, but of course we can't be too mad at Aisha because I have a strong suspicion that she, uh, and, or Lisa or both of them or whatever, um, know exactly what's going to happen when Gru goes in there. Right. Yeah. I agree with that a hundred percent. Like we just noted how, how good of an idea this comes from like a meta narrative perspective, but surely our characters are aware of those connotations as well. They're not stupid. Like mm-hmm. Lisa isn't stupid. Aisha isn't stupid. They know that there is a, a line you can easily draw between Riley and Kenzie. And maybe they suspect here that not only will this Brian be the perfect person to deal with, with Kenzie in this way, but perhaps um, Kenzie is the perfect person to help Brian deal with some of his shit as well. So it's this, it, it, it adds to the brilliance of this whole scenario where it makes sense on a Watsonian level, but also a dualistic level, right? It's both. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love it. Yeah, and and I agree. And now let's get into all the details of that. Yeah. Um, so so again, before he goes in there, Darlene runs into him, and Darlene um, uh, is she's being very hesitant and and unsure of herself. And Brian is torn between the impulse to be brusque and efficient, which reminds him of his dad and is how he's been behaving lately, versus the desire to be softer, which he finds difficult and unnatural. 
Yeah, I this wow, this interaction. I love it so much. I I, I wanted to talk about it, so I just pulled it all and I'm not going to read it all. But the thing I really like about this is the first thing he does when he sees Darlene and she starts to ask the question and there's a pause here. Brian starts describing what Darlene looks like. 12 or so, Darlene had black hair that didn't go below her chin, tucked behind her ears, and bold red lipstick that didn't suit a kid her age. She wore a costume with a knee-length dress built in and a shiny black cloth overlain with silver tracery. Her tights were silver with black tracery. Now, we, the reader, already know what Darlene looks like. We've seen her for many, 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 many chapters. And, and I think this is important. Like We're updating the reader to what Darlene looks like. But I don't think this is just like Darlene being described. So we know, right. This is specifically the text describing Darlene for the sake of the point of view character and almost only the point of view character. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really fascinating because it means like we're, we're, we're getting into Brian's state of mind and understanding how Brian is processing things through the use of this description. So like, it is not just Wadbo saying, did you need to remember what Darlene looked like? No, we, we, we know what she looks like and we know her general fashion style, but it, it, it still has it here. And like, it's it's this kind of contradiction here he's seeing between her as this young girl, but also someone who dresses much older than they are. And I mean, it's the, it's a way that he's specifically drawing a line here to to Imp, to his sister and why he um, why he kind of uh, is able to is able to kind of get 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 things together enough to to wait for her to answer instead of like being the gruff uh, impulse like person he was when he was on the flock yeah um i i think that's that's great it, it is it is being the connection is being made directly right and and he is um he's almost sort of taking like a, a another stab at how he feels like he failed to be a good big brother i, yeah, I, sure, I think sure, like sure. like part, partly with darlene here and and also sort of partly with kinsey um because he clearly um he clearly feels like he failed as a, as a brother, or at least that that's what that seems to be the case to me anyway. I mean, he, he thinks later about how um, the the last thing he thought about before he died was Aisha, and which is just heartbreaking to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, I, I I see that being the connection here specifically. Yeah. No, I I totally agree with that. I just like it. it just very. I was I was really into this idea that oh, we're doing like a full description of a character that's been in the story for literally months yeah um right and it's also really interesting out to me he, i think it's also interesting because he he knew her um when she was two years younger basically yeah that's he, true and 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 now she's she looks different and she is different and and he's still coming to grips with that so mm -hmm. yeah. um yeah yeah so so the reason why um the reason why darlene is talking to him is because she wants to disconnect from kenzie and Brian is like, uh, no, because he wants backup. And I think that's such a great subtle indicator of how freaked out about this he actually is. Yeah. I mean, I know that there are powers involved and stuff and that all distorts like the power balance of being a person in this world, especially how us normal humans see it. But there is something like very powerful in the visualization of this like large fit adult man with a fucking skull on his face. <laughs> I know yeah. he has it covered. I know he has it covered with makeup right now, but it's there. And he has this badass superpower darkness 
and and this idea of him being so terrified of this interaction that he wants to lean on this young child despite her asking if if she can get away from this thing that he's so scared that he needs to lean on this child mm-hmm. um e- even after she says please don't include me i mean i think that's such a powerful image like yes yes there there are superpowers things are different power dynamics are messed up but for us the reader like that image is just it's just very it, it just it really it really sends that message i think yeah i think that's that's uh exactly right this just actually kind of struck me but this the idea that um having a a skull on his face is like the most sadistic possible thing because it's not just um yes he did used to wear a skull mask and so it's a fun inversion of like okay he used to have a skull mask now he permanently has a skull Mm -hmm. on his face but a skull is a clear symbol of death yeah and and it's it's basically like a mark of of death of of having been dead and 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 he's especially because he's this person who who has this terrible PTSD um surrounding like near death experience that he had. Uh it's it's just such a it, it's worse it's it's worse than it would be if it was just like uh uh yeah, it, it's it's bad in two different ways, I guess is what I'm saying. No, I, I totally I totally that's a great thing to call out. Yeah, I mean, imagine having to look in the mirror and not only are you reminded of the fact that you are no longer Brian, you are just grew, but also reminded of the fact that, hey, remember that time when you died and now yeah. you're back? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Great. Yeah. Um, so I, I love that. So, you know, we, we already mentioned that he um, uh, that he's been using his power all the time. Um, but when he comes into the room where Kenzie is um it says uh, what had been white walls floor and ceiling became black smoke heavy and slow moving he left apertures for the lights yeah i mean i love this i mean it, like in the story he's using his power here to prevent her from like doing tinkery shenanigans right but i i do love that like it's it just like we're, we're approaching this conversation that we've built up as it's going to be this very difficult, scary conversation and the white walls and floors become black and heavy. And uh, it's just it's just really it's just a really way of setting the mood, really great way of setting the mood. Right. And and the thing is, um, I immediately imagine what this is, what this experience is like for Kenzie, because for her, she doesn't know this guy. And then he mm-hmm. comes in and like she's smiling through the first part of this interaction when he comes in, which means it's she's upset and, and afraid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she, she's already been upset, but but now she's got this large man who's cornered her in here and then turned her room into this little nightmare zone. Yeah, um, it's it's got to be way scarier for her. Right. And, he, and it doesn't even occur to him how how terrifying he must seem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I love it because like he catches her attempting to pick the lock, too. So it's not only is is he barging in here with smoke ready to talk to her, but like the the connotation here, at least from her mind, is I was caught doing something I'm not supposed to do. And now I'm in super, super trouble. Um, And here's skull faced McSmoke man to come to punish me. (laughs) And like. I think it's it's it 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 really enhances the the stakes here. Um, I mean, like it also to me, the fact that she was picking the lock also kind of sets the stage for how this is going to go from Brian's side as well, because it's clear here that Kenzie, even though she was just knocked out because she was going like real, real bad, um, doesn't seem like she's taken the time to realize, okay, that was bad. And I need to I need to be better about that. She's just kind of saying, okay, I just got to I just got to get out of here and I'll fix it that way. Right. Yeah. I, I feel like um, her mentality about this is probably that he's here to like 
intimidate and guard her. And, and the yeah. last thing that she would expect would be a conversation. Right. Um, right. And, and it's like, it's interesting because I love, I love the way it goes because you can imagine it going badly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ki- kind of easily like it even it doesn't start off going great like at first no. you know she, she's she keeps requesting that 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 she be allowed to leave and help and he just keeps stonewalling her but he's stonewalling her with this like sort of measured patience and just like very reasonable assurances like he, he's not just being like no no he, he he's being like look you've already done a lot for your team and now you just need to trust your team and yeah and he taught he, he successfully talks her down actually and then relatively quickly, he sits down and then he kind of starts opening up to her. Mm-hmm. And you really get that he needs this, too. Yeah. Um, he, he starts talking about Cozen, starts talking about the things about her that he liked and, and remembered fondly. And then he tells Kinsey that when the world ended, none of that mattered. It didn't matter that he had someone that he cared about and loved in his life. He didn't even think about Taylor or, or Cozen at, at all. He was basically just alone. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're you're absolutely right here. I, I this this whole conversation from how it starts to how it fin- and ends is just fantastic. And before we really dive into that stuff that you just talked about, I, I kind of want to just like generally talk about the scene. And, and maybe it's because we've been watching a lot of Fincher movies for the Doofcast. But I see this as kind of like a very classic Fincher conversation scene in just like the way it's doled out, the way it's measured, the way it kind of ramps up and then kind of curves and veers. And and like there are separate climaxes within the conversation where you feel like things are about to get really bad and then there's a little breakthrough and then we kind of let the tension die down but then ramp it up again um i don't know like this is just like to me a masterwork of managing tension i love the comparison to adventure scene but yeah i mean it's it's a very it's a long conversation there's even mm-hmm. gaps in it um which i think is a really fun technique yeah, and yeah. uh it 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 goes all over the place, but it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't feel long. It feels like you're riveted the whole time. Oh, yeah. I really think oh, yeah. it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. But to get to your point though, Kenzie is basically saying that she needs to go out there right now. Uh, and she, cause she needs to help. And even if she can't help, she needs to be around her people. Um, because she's so tired of being alone. And if the world is going to end, she wants to be with, she wants to have someone to hug and wants someone to be with when the world is ending. And Brian is like, well, um, I did. And let me tell you, she was great, but turns out dying still sucks. Yeah. <laughs> no matter if you have a person with you or not. Um, and people don't necessarily make that okay. And and I think like this is great because it's such a radical idea to Kenzie because she places such a premium on having people and having these connections that she's willing to go too far to maintain them. And and Brian is just like, hey, guess what, Kenzie? Sometimes it doesn't help too much. Um, and not to get too personal with me, but this really jumped out of an anecdote in my life. Like we were talking last week about how one of my greatest fears as a parent is that I say something that my kid remembers forever. Well, guess what, Matt? One time my dad said something to me and I remember it forever. And I think I might've talked about this on the show before. I don't remember, but my dad and I just one time were having this conversation about like, uh, the fact that he's alone a lot due to his job. He's a pilot. So his job is flying out and just hanging out in a hotel alone a lot. And he said to me something to the effect of, you know, Scott, no matter what you do in your life, no matter how outgoing you are, how successful you are, no matter how great your relationships and marriages are, there are still going to be times in your life that you're just going to find yourself totally alone. Um, 
and you need to be able to deal with those moments and be okay with them. And that, for whatever reason, has stuck in my head forever. I will never forget that. I will never forget that. Especially there were times in my life that I was totally alone, like after a relationship or like when I was traveling for work or stuff like that, where you're just kind of miserable and you're all by yourself. Um, and and my, my point here is that... Um, not that that's like a super healthy attitude to have all the time. My my father, bless him, is a super pessimistic person sometimes, and I think so is so is Brian. Um, <laughs> but I I do think there's wisdom to be had in this idea that connections are important. Having people around you are important. That's something this book has said over and over and over again. The connections we have with people are some of the most important things that can help us get through some of the most important moments of our life. But if you value the idea of connection so much that you are willing to do whatever it takes to hold on to it, that is just as destructive as not having the connection at all, as being alone. Sometimes connections are broken. Sometimes they fade away. Sometimes people leave us. Sometimes they die. Sometimes they just don't want to be around us anymore. That happens. And we don't have control over it all the time. And we need to be okay with that happening. We need to accept that sometimes our connections fail. And that is the one thing that Kenzie cannot do or has not been able to do. And Brian is saying here, like, look, you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to let those things go sometimes, because at the end of the day, at the end of your life, at the end of the world, the things that make a difference are going to be the time you spent with those connections, not that you had them right there with you at the end. Yeah, I love it. I love that. Um, I, I, this is going to sound pessimistic, but if you ever heard the phrase, uh, everyone dies alone. Yeah. I, I'm not, I just Googled where that's from and I can't actually find it. It's like a mystery. Um, but I think that's, that pretty much ca captures the the sentiment that like, no matter what you do, it, it all kind of ends the same for everybody. And, and that's not, I don't think it's meant to be hopeless. It's just meant to be like, look, like you, it's kind of a, you can't take it with you type of sentiment right, more. Right, yeah. It's it's like he, it's speaking in terms of acceptance. You have to accept <clears throat> that that no matter how much you love these people and how much you want them to be around you all the time, you have to accept that they're not going to be mm -hmm. a one hundred percent guaranteed. They're not going to right, be. And that, right. This isn't the maybe, and and this is this is the main thing. Kenzie's always struggled with is her kind of attachment issue, and and this is really what she has needed to hear. I think for some time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think it's such a, it's such a simple but powerful thing. And I think, you know, we romanticize the idea of like being surrounded by loved ones at, at the end of your life. Um, and, and look, I, that's the way I want to go. But also at the end of the day, you're, you're still dying. Like, right. it, it, does it, does it matter if I have every single friend I've ever had holding my hands or, or with their hands on my shoulders as I pass away or does it matter that I can look at the end of my life and be like you know uh that person and I didn't stay friends forever or, or I lost that person in my 20s they died does it matter more that you can look back at those moments and say hey the moments I had there were pretty great mm. they're pretty great and it's okay that I didn't have it forever but because it gave me what I needed in the moment um and I think that's what Brian's saying here. And I just, I don't know, there's something that just speaks to me like very specifically. I think it has probably to do with the conversation my dad and I had all those years ago, but it just, that is something that speaks very personally to me. Um, and, and I think it's, it's so thematically fitting for everything we've been, we've been talking about with Kenzie, this whole, whole story. Yeah. Well, I think, it, I think 
I think everyone can struggle with this idea. I mean, I, I think everyone maybe. I feel like everybody struggles with like losing friends over time, and, and not yeah, yeah. not not due to you know death. And I mean, unless you're, you know, unless there's a tragedy, which of course does happen. Yeah. Um, but just due to time and distance and and, and convenience, like it's 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 very it's very hard. Um, but I think like the, the, a healthy attitude about it is just to be like, well, you know, we had we had really good times when we were together, and I can remember those fondly, and I'm not gonna flagellate myself over over the fact that i mean we're not in contact anymore or, or whatever yeah um, yeah yeah um yeah so i mean i think i think that segues perfectly i mean i mean it's it's designed to segue perfectly <laughs> into this this next bit where um he then kind of steps outside and tells darlene that she can cut the connection um partly because he started to relax and he doesn't feel like he needs the backup but i think also uh because maybe on some level he detects that Kenzie doesn't need the connection. Like, like yeah, she, she, yeah. she, she won't freak out now because, because Darlene disconnects with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and, mean this, this whole speech yeah. about how sometimes you have to be willing to let the connections go. Right. And then we immediately go, okay, Darlene break the connection. Right. Um, and you're yeah. going to have to, Kenzie deal with that, deal with that. Um, yeah. And she, I mean, she's not happy about it, but she doesn't like immediately lose it. So right. Good. Yeah, I, lo- I love how Darlene's power ser- serves as this great metaphor for, you know, d- direct connection, um, w- which is which kind of makes sense that Kenzie has like embraced it so much. And she's like, oh, good. Yeah. Th- this is great. We can always 100 percent of the time be connected. And Darlene's like, no, that's super not uh, fun for me. But um, also it's hard to say no to that kind of intensity. Yeah, I mean, um, I-, I think we said this when Kenzie was first like linking up with these kids we were like wow that is both the perfect and the worst possible person for kenzie to be really close friends with yeah (laughs) because it feeds into her worst tendencies um but also like it's it's both right because it feeds into her worst tendencies but also might be the only person that can like give her enough comfort to to get to help her get to a point where she can change and get Mm -hmm. over it um that obviously isn't what ended up happening but um it, it could have been both at the same time yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so then he goes back inside, and, and he and Darlene gives him a, a heart-covered band-aid, and <sighs> then he uses that band-aid to cover the scar on Kenzie's face that she's been kind of self-consciously hiding, and now they're both covering up their scars. Yeah, I mean, we didn't talk about that as the conversation started, but I just love that Brian like immediately noticed Kenzie's scar. Like he walks in the room and she's like doing this thing where her hand is by her mouth and she's kind of covering up the place on her, her face where the scar is. Um, and, and I know that like Kenzie has been perpetually hiding this thing, basically the entire book, like anytime she had any tech on her at all, she was using that tech to cover up the scar. And this is one of only a rare number of times that her tech has been stripped away from her enough that, um, she can't hide it. But, the fact that he notices it right away and notices that she's hiding it is so wonderful. Like, I, I'm just like, oh, dude, you are good with kids. <laughs> Look right. at you go. And and I love that Brian's point of view emphasizes how small it is. Like this scar has metaphorically and almost literally ruled so much of Kenzie's life. Like this is like the original wound that um, that has carried into the person that she continued to become. And and then Brian looks at it and it's like, oh, it's this this small little barely visible scar. And he just very easily like gets a Band-Aid to cover it up. And it's just like, I don't know, it's just like the perfect it, it has so much emotional weight to it. But at the end of the day, 
It's just a little scar. And look, we can just, co- it's really, it's not that hard to cover up. It's not that mm-hmm. hard. Um, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Right. And there's this, there's also, I mean, another thing that makes it just feel so set up, whether or not it is, is that they both have these, uh, things on their face that they're, that they're self-conscious about. And, yeah. Yeah. and they kind of, by, by being there for each other, they're almost giving each other a kind of permission to, to feel that way about that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think it ties into what they talk about next about like you choosing to be the person you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian, his face has a skull on it, but he's choosing to cover that with makeup. He's choosing to say, I want the person I want to send out to the world is Brian, not Gru. He's making that choice. And she can choose to be a person that covers up her scars with love because it's a heart band aid. Yeah. It's the heart heart shaped pupil theme, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. awesome. It's great, yeah. and it's from the heartbroken. And yep, yep. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so then next next I talk about whether Kinsey would get into heaven, um, <laughs> which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then and then after that, Brian explains that you can't change people, which is another another thing Kinsey's needed to hear for a long time. Uh, Scott, people should have been t- having these conversations with Kinsey. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> But like to be as charitable as possible to all these people, I think they've tried. Like, I do think Victoria has tried to have maybe not this exact conversation, but a a conversation like this. I think Swan Song has probably tried as well. It's just really hard. And this is something that Kenzie has hard had has had a really hard time accepting. And it it reminds me of last week's conversation where we, we saw as disgusting and disappointing as it was that Amy needed to destroy another life before she was able to hit rock bottom maybe Kenzie needed to be here in this moment and have it be this person who finally, finally lays this thing out to her in this way to get her to finally, finally, finally understand it. Mm. So, yeah, Yeah. I mean, like, uh, yes, I think Victoria, I think breakthrough have, um, have played into some of Kenzie's absolute worst tendencies and have not dealt with her in some of the best ways, multiple times throughout this book. I totally think that's true, but I also think like she had to get here before there was hope to get better. Yeah. I I think that's, I think that's true. I think fundamentally people have to be open to change or or looking to change Mm -hmm. and, and receptive to a message like this, especially when it's so sort of cutting to the quick of, of who they are and how they are in the world. And, and in this moment, she's probably at peak, like, um, hopelessness and feeling like her strategies are just not not working for her anymore and yeah. uh break down and and so she might actually be in a place where she can take this to heart like you said so yeah i uh, there's definitely some exasperation that i feel but i, I also uh, completely agree that even if you know if if victoria or whoever had this conversation she'd just be like yeah that makes sense <laughs> and then just go on being who she is Sure, sure, sure. I really love how the text is written here, though. You can't change other people. The heartbroken couldn't do a thing to make their father less of a monster. I couldn't do anything to change Skitter. Skitter couldn't change Rachel. Look at Rose up, propping herself up. You just said before that she did. You change yourself, set your boundaries, decide what you'll do and who you'll be to others, but you can't change them. And I love that as just like, that's like a shout out to Rachel herself. We're like, yeah. I mean, it is absolutely 100% true that Taylor being there for her helped Rachel along on her journey. But Rachel would not have made that change if she didn't want to make that change. And so, like, 
give Rachel all the credit in the world. She's this way because of herself, because she decided that she wanted to change. She wanted to be that person. Um, and, and then he says, decide who you want to be, refine that person, study the skills you'll need, go to the gym, work out. And I think we have to remember, you know, we've been talking very specifically in the angle of Kenzie this whole time, that this is a conversation for Kenzie. But I think the brilliance of this is that Brian is talking to himself at the same time. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's saying these things to reinforce it in himself and these feelings he's had like we we met him as this guy who was very uncomfortable in his surroundings who clearly wasn't sure who he was and what he wanted to be and and how he interacts with people he's uncomfortable around his sister because he's not even sure how grew fits in with brian the brian of it all um and so this is for him just as much as it is for her decide who you want to be refine that person study the skills you'll need set your boundaries decide who you'll be to others decide who you'll be to yourself and do it. Go towards that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I like that a lot. I mean, it, it definitely it's easy to forget. Um, it's easy to forget that. But I think that's absolutely the case because he's struggling. He's struggling to fit in here. Yeah. Yeah. And he's kind of reminding himself of these lessons that he's learned in his life that have brought him here. Um, and and I think not only that, but he's he's, uh, you know, part of what part of what's happening is he's kind of incrementally um relaxing and and becoming slightly more okay with being trapped in a room with with this tinker yeah and um and just overall being able to open up to someone which is not something that he's able to do hardly ever like no, like no. like Aisha in the last chapter thought through herself repeatedly like like Brian just doesn't open up to people and it's it's kind of it's kind of an issue like he's maybe opened up to like two people ever and and let his guard down and I think I really think that's what's happening here for, for whatever reason. I don't know if I can even specify exactly what the reason is, but for whatever reason, Kenzie has kind of um, unlocked that that part of him that's able he, that, that makes him able to open up and be vulnerable with her because he's de- he definitely is being vulnerable. And he's talking about Kozen and, and their their home life together. Like he would never share that with Aisha. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. And and so. So yeah, like there's something I'm not sure. Like she's not doing anything on purpose. Obviously, it's, I think it's just her nature that that does it for him somehow. Yeah, I mean, I think Brian, like Brian's a good dude, and and I think that the idea of you know trying to make up for perceived failures that he had with his sister is probably part of it. That yes, he sees some of Riley and Kenzie, but he probably sees some of Aisha and Kenzie too, and he sees an opportunity to help someone. And sometimes you know being a mentor sometimes trying to help others is a is a key to help yourself and so in in an effort to connect to her he's kind of forced to open up about himself and to me i mean this is pure speculation but i feel like this is probably something he's wanted to get off his chest for a long 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 time and he's just the type of person that just couldn't do that like could never bring himself to do that but if you do it in the frame of i am doing it to help this other person maybe it becomes a little easier like i Look, I don't talk about myself very often, but when I get in front of this microphone and I'm trying to <laughs> I'm trying to like talk about this book, the the personal anecdotes about me just kind of come pouring out of me because it's just a way to relate yourself to something you're experiencing somewhere else. Yes, I too am enjoying this public therapy uh, uh, project. <laughs> that's that's yeah, <laughs> jokes on you guys. This is this is what we've been doing the whole time. Yeah, it's it's been very good for me. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I I love that like the, the biggest like little little present we get here is that there's this section break 
which implies that like time has passed. And then there's just more conversation after yeah, it. And it's yeah. like, oh, so they, they're just, they've just been hanging out. They're continuing this conversation and time is passing. It's so great. Yeah. They're just swapping stories. Um, just like, like it's, it's moved on to almost small talk at this point because mm-hmm. they've moved past the really heavy stuff and they've moved on to kind of just small talk. Of course it's, it's parahuman. So the small talk involves, uh, uh torturing heartbreaker until he kills himself. But you know, that's <laughs> in this world, that's small talk. Yeah, right. I, <laughs> it just it, it was also really nice to learn that Heartbreaker slit, Heartbreaker slit his own throat uh, after him tormented him for God knows how long. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and condone this type of behavior, but Heartbreaker is the exception that proves the rule like every time. So, so fuck him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, satisfying. Yes. Um, so, so then after uh, quite a bit of talking between the two of them, Chicken and Darlene come in to talk to Kenzie and it does not go super well. Uh, yeah, that's the uh, look. Here's what happened to everyone on the script. Matt wrote. Here's what Matt wrote for the entire Chicken and Darlene and Kenzie conversation. They come in and talk to her and it doesn't go well. That's all you wrote, Matt. <laughs> I figured we would uh, use that as a jumping off point. This is like one of the biggest moments of this chapter. It is. It is. But but ultimately, it's it's easy to it's easy to summarize as the thing like like sure. like chicken can't really handle can't really handle it because Kinsey is still very out of sorts and she's being almost too honest um, about about how out yeah. of sorts she's being. While he might actually prefer that she be like, yeah, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll be better. But the thing is, she's at a point now where I don't think she can or wants to pretend that she's just going to be better um that like she she knows she can't promise that and he's like oh fuck this is this is too heavy and and this is kind of a typical reaction for him actually to just be like oh my god this is too much i I can't handle this he Um, he says one of his chickens got hurt or one of his birds got hurt and he needs to go tend to it and is like bye yeah i can't handle this right now Um, yeah um and then and then darlene stays behind and is is very angry obviously and is very protective of of her loved ones specifically candy um but then it's a, it, it it's a bit complicated I, I have a certain reading of it um yeah well let's talk about that i mean yeah. what what darlene basically says here is like we're family we take care of each other um we put up with each other even when we're at our worst you you were part of that but i can't let you be part of that anymore because like, I love this line, Candy will forgive you, you know, and I can't let her. That's how I protect her. Not if I can't trust you and I don't trust you like this, which means you're not family anymore. Um, and it's 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 brutal, like it cuts right mm-hmm. to the bone. Um, and like, it's interesting because like this idea that, you know, we value family more than anything. It's why even when we fuck up with each other, um, we stick it out. Like, you know, you think about what candy did to the, the, uh, I forget what the guy, the one that can't eat at all because of candy. I forget his name. The guy who's just the butt of everything. Yeah. Is it yeah. Nathan? I, don't, I, I honestly, sure. I don't even yeah. want to speculate. I can't remember Sorry. his name, but yeah, the, me the, 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 the point is there's, there's a member of the heartbroken, um, that, uh, that, is just has just been absolutely devastated. Um, and so that's a line that none of them, that it's okay if they cross here, but it seems like they, they invited Kenzie into the circle, but not like the inner inner circle, just like one of the outer rings of the circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is much easier to fall out from one of those outer rings. Um, and that's kind of, it seems like at least to Darlene, that's what's happened here. 
Yeah. So, so I, um, I think my reading might've been slightly different and I, I, I wonder what you think about this because my, my, my kind of take is that she's, she's angry and emotional and flustered. And so the message she's trying to communicate is, um, I, I, I feel like I can't trust you the way you're being right now, but if, if you work to make this up to me, then, then we, we can potentially be okay again, but I'm not going to just let you keep behaving this way. And especially if you're going to hurt candy and so you're on thin ice, but, but she, she kind of said, she says it herself that, that like she says what she wants to say, but she says it out of order. So the fact that her last sentence is, which means you're not family anymore. I feel like that's not really putting her foot down. That's more like a sentence, which, which would have gone earlier in, in this speech if, if she had planned it out better. And it is, was actually just like, if you're going to keep behaving this way that you're not family anymore is maybe more what she meant. And um, maybe that's a bit too uh, convoluted of a reading, but I, I'm basing it on the fact that when she finishes talking, she says, I said everything I wanted to say, but I said it in the wrong order. Um, so yeah, I just wanted, wanted to see your reaction to that. No, I, I think that was generally, I don't think I focused on the out of order stuff quite as much as you. And I think that helps me understand it a little bit better. Um, I, I am with you on that. Like, I think I, I don't trust you like this is, is a pretty important line in this whole thing because like, like I can't trust you. You can't be part of my family if I can't trust you. And if you continue to be like this, I can't trust you. And yeah. therefore, as long as you remain like this, you are not in the family. Um, I, 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 I think to me, that's what's going on here. Yeah. I think you're right. Like, I don't think, I don't think the end of the conversation is you're out, you're done. I never want to see you anymore. Like, it's just that you have, you have earned a spot in the family in the past because of our friendship and our, our camaraderie and our, our teamwork. And you have betrayed that to the point where you're pushed out of that circle. And I'm not saying you're not going to be invited back into the circle. It is very possible, but you have to prove to me that you're capable of being invited back into that circle. Yeah. I think functionally what this is doing is it's setting up for what happens next because, um, it, what happens next, I don't think would work as well if they had just said you're off the team. We don't want to be your friend anymore. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not saying that what they are saying is like, you're real close to the edge of being off the team. Right, right. You, you, you might be off the team depending on how you react to this conversation. Right. Well, um, I mean, it, yeah, because she asked them, like, what if what if we gave you a choice? Like, what if you almost like what if we gave you an ultimatum? And her answer to that is, honestly, I don't know. I don't know mm -hmm. if that would be enough for me. And then and then that's after that point is when Darlene like really just nails her hard mm -hmm. um, with with this line with this like this just stings her with this you're not family anymore line. Um, so like I think that is that is probably what discombobulated Darlene a little bit here mm -hmm. is that like like Chicken Little handled the the conversation not being as easy as they expected with getting the hell out of Dodge. Mm -hmm. Darlene handles it with almost doubling down on her anger and disappointment. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I like look this this chapter ends with Candy like following Kenzie back into a room. Right. So like mm -hmm. the idea that the heartbroken are done with Kenzie and like, if she talks to any of them anymore, they're going to kill her immediately or something is just not accurate from what we've seen at all. Yeah. So, um, I, I do agree with you that it is not just like Darlene is just like done with you. Bye. Yeah. Well, I feel like it's progress actually, because 
I feel like a prior, you know, prior to this day, Kenzie would have just been like, oh yeah, yeah, no, sorry. That was a mistake. Yeah. Give me an ultimatum. I'll, I'll do better. And now, right, and now right. like, because she's at rock bottom, because she's really seeing herself objectively in this moment. And she's like, I can't promise you anything. I'm, I'm fucked up is, is yeah. basically the sentiment. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so the thing that it leads into, which I think works really well, we have another section break first, uh, meaning they're, they're, they're continuing to talk to each other and then breakthrough shows up. Um, and Kenzie's so happy to see them, of course, but then they tell her, no, you can't come on, on this next thing we're going to do. Um, it's, it's dangerous and you're also in a really bad place. So we don't really trust you. I don't say that, but I think that's implied. Yeah. yeah. And they say dragon's going to take over your tech, which is, which is kind of a, a, a big boundary for, for Kenzie. Like the, the idea that the dragon's just going to take over her tech is, is this almost a violation. And, and there's this moment where it really seems like they pushed her over the edge with this with this rejection. Um, and she leaves and, and they're all like, ah, oh, fuck. We, yeah, we, yeah. Like this is, this is awful. This is the worst case scenario. And then she immediately returns and she takes out her little eye needle cam thing and she gives it to him and she wishes him luck. And, and like you said, when she leaves, Candy follows her off. Yeah, I mean, this is such a it's such a great build up moment. Like this is this is it. This is the climax. This is did did that conversation do anything for Kenzie? This is almost like the the last best shot here. Um, and I, I think that it shows clearly that she did take some of this to heart that, you know, like the symbolic like she could have just walked away. She could have even just faked happiness, like smiled and said, yeah, good luck. And then walked away. But she she leaves. She comes back out she pulls the eye camera out almost as if a gesture of not only am i going to listen to you here but here's my tech so i can't even cheat i'm removing my ability to cheat around the rules you're setting for me mm-hmm. um and i'm willing to do that for you um, yeah and that's great fucking news man exactly it, it's it's it, it's absolutely um a turnaround it's, mm-hmm. it's a it's a great moment and uh yeah i mean i think after this, you know, Brian then suggests that they're trying to come up with like an option of what to do. And Brian's the one to suggest bone saw as an yeah. option. And and just like I don't think Kinsey could have accepted being benched without this conversation with Brian. I don't think Brian could have suggested bone saw as, a, as an option without this conversation with Kinsey. Yeah, I, I know. I totally agree with that. And I think it's it, uh, the conversation with Kinsey is such a huge part about it. But I like what the text says here where he's he's hesitating and thinking he looked back in the direction of the tinker that had retreated given how victoria had decided to handle this he thought of bonesaw he decided to trust them so it's not just that the conversation with kenzie got him to this point it's the conversation with kenzie on top of looking at how breakthrough handled their member like you look at how breakthrough saw kenzie as this problem and how they handled the problem and the problem was please listen to us um we're going to we're going to choose we're going to bench you. Please trust us. Um, and and so because Kenzie trusted them, he does as well. Yeah, I like that. That's a good connection. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it's interesting, though, because so this chapter basically wraps up here and turn like it kind of seems like it's going to turn out that the bone saw thing might actually end up being a bad thing. I or, I think maybe it's too soon to say, though. So, yeah, I mean, there's a whole lot of Seamer shenanigans going on here, yeah. right? So, like, it's very easy to look at the next chapter and be like, well, 
everything that they did was actually just a part of this long cause and effect chain. And it's actually going to doom everything. I, I just don't think I don't think that's true. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, from a meta narrative perspective, like I don't think the world's just going to end and Seamurg's just going to win. And that's the finish of the book. So something has to go wrong here in that regard. And so I, I have to assume that part of the strengths and the, and the, the, the improvements that each of these characters has made along the course of this isn't leading to a more successful Seamurg victory. <laughs> like I just have to believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same place where I'm like, I, I, I kind of it would break me mm-hmm. to to believe that the story is actually going to go like the way. Right. The way the story assures us that it's going yes. to go. So Bri- Brian was finally able to get past his shit and reach out to the person that wronged him the most. And turns out that was playing that was, right into the it, enemy's hand. That was the worst possible thing to happen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I just I nah, I I I I will not believe that. <laughs> All right. It's a good it's a good place to be in while reading. <laughs> All right, 19.z and it's the random bird interlude. Just kidding. It's basically another Seamer interlude, right? I mean, like that's that's kind of what we've established. We, yep. we jump around yep. POVs in these Seamer interludes. Of course, it starts out not being clear that that's what we're going to do. Uh we we start out with this very fateful crow startling as part of a chain of cause and effect yeah i mean i i, I actually went back to the worm uh seamer interlude and and i didn't read the whole chapter but i kind of skimmed it just to like remind myself of how wildbo handled that last time and um it is remarkably similar in, in its general structure of how it jumps around between point of view characters um i think it makes it the 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 one in worm makes it clear from the start that it's the seamer whereas this one kind of holds that till the end but it is like it is really beautiful and 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 I really love how like we kind of we kind of read everything and then we get context on everything afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it's like we're almost taking the, the, the old Seamer cause and effect chain and showing the effect first and then going back and seeing the cause. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I, I, I agree completely. It's it's structurally makes perfect sense when you when you go through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I also want to note that here at the beginning here uh, basically confirms the uh, the key to this whole thing is uh, the annoying of birds. So mm-hmm. <laughs> chalk that up to another win for the Scottster. <laughs> yeah, that's that's totally what that is. Yep. A hundred percent. No questions. Moving on. Don't need yep. to think about it. Moving anymore. on. No, I have, yeah, I have, I have no reaction to that. I'm speechless. <laughs> Uh, so then we move on to Dragon, who gives us a very fun peek into the incredible shenanigans that the Defiant, that sorry, that she and Defiant are up to. Uh, and it's some really fun sci-fi combat stuff, and it gives us a window into the large scale of the battle that's been going on while our perspective has been relatively limited by what uh, Vicky and co are up to. Yeah, and, and this is one of those sections that I honestly feel like I don't have too, too much to say about. Um, it's like a bunch of crazy high concept dragon is a badass computer shit that I, I, I enjoy. I enjoy a whole bunch, but I just feel like I don't have anything particularly clever to say about it besides neat. I like that. Um, and, and somehow, somehow knowing us, we'll still end up talking about this part for 20 minutes. Of course. So. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's sci-fi stuff. It's entertaining. It's creative. Uh, there's there's a lot of great character stuff thrown into it. Like for example, the fact that Dragon is is vexed by the fact that that like everybody now knows she's a robot, and so she can't decide now whether she should act fatigued so that she can blend in and and, and be comradely, 
um, and yet risk being seen as faking it, which would have the opposite effect, uh, or that she should act stoic and then be seen as aloof and, and, and inhuman. Um, and she can't really figure out how to solve this problem. And it's, you know, like as she's thinking this, she's fighting like eight separate battles apparently. So, yeah, um, I, I love this so much, Matt. Like this is probably my favorite bit of the section, to be honest with you. Like she's looking around, all these people are exhausted. They're hunched over, they're leaning on stuff. They're barely standing. And she's just standing there straight being like, uh, what should I do? Mm-hmm. It's, it's this, it's this hilarious contradiction here where it's a problem brought on about because she's not human but also being self-conscious of your appearance is superhuman <laughs> as well. Yeah. Like, right. Like, so she's like the problem she's having is she's not human and therefore doesn't, isn't tired like everyone else is, but just by being self-conscious of that fact and trying to figure out like, what's the correct way to stand? What should I be doing? That is innately human. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I love it. I love that contradiction. Yeah. I, I love her. Um, Just her whole kind of narration because it's, it's, it is xenofiction because she she does not have a human mind, but it's it's like xenofiction light because because she is sort of trying to be like a human mm-hmm. and she's constrained in certain ways that make her relatively human like and she thinks about human concerns like people's comfort and and whether people are going to accept her, but then also like she can just turn her attention in a direction that we don't have access to and be aware of like what seven different mechs are doing and and like be literally having a battle with a titan while she's also having a conversation with someone or or, or what have you yeah yeah um so it, it's a yeah i just i really enjoy everything about it yeah I, I do too i mean like and i think the the cool thing about this chapter or at least this section of the chapter is like the point of view matches that understanding of mm-hmm. that this is a person who is both um very conscious in the moment but is also processes and thinks about things on a level beyond just a a human brain yeah yeah so all in all though like the high-powered tinkering weapons that they're using that she and define are using don't really do a whole lot like they Mm -hmm. they do damage the titans apparently pretty badly but it's clear that the titans will really mostly walk away from this and probably recover from it um and and so like it it's it's flashy and exciting and everything but she didn't take any of them out and so it's almost it's almost just kind of a wash and and mm-hmm. she also she can't relieve legend because uh legend is like really wounded and exhausted and he's nonetheless almost single-handedly holding back the machine army um but she can't go relieve him because she thinks that the machine army will steal her tech um so that's that's an element that's in play there yeah i mean i i always find it interesting how the ways in which this book kind of like um, orients some of the biggest, most powerful players away from our point of view characters. Um, this is something that I think Ward has done a lot of. And this is, this is another example of that where like legend, they're like, Oh, if legend is with the rest of the group for this final push, he could really help lead that. And it's like, well, no, we can't do that because he's the only one taking on the machine army. And I can't relieve him of that because then I'll be hacked and that could be super, super bad. Um, and so it's just like it's just kind of how we move our our some of our biggest, most powerhouse characters around on the chessboard. Um, if we don't if we don't want them to be in the scene. OK, what do we do there? Well, they're they're busy. There's other stuff going on. And that's yeah. I mean, like the, the book has done that a whole lot. Like the wardens have always been doing things in the background that Victoria was just never aware of. Um, be just good because of her relative position and, and to the, the power structure of the world. 
Right. I, I love how that's always been set up because like the things that appear to be the biggest fires that need to be put out, which may actually be extremely dangerous, you know, hazards that do need to be dealt with yeah. are, are the ones that soak up all the all the attention because they're so visible and obviously dangerous. Mm-hmm. But then like the reason why Victoria and her and Breakthrough keep ending up in these situations is that there's like a hundred things going on all the time and very often something can become a sudden flashpoint that wasn't obvious and and victoria kind of has a way of uh being there for those um, yeah i, I so. mean you could you could rewrite this entire book from the perspective of someone on the wardens and i don't think you would get a lot of overlap in events like yeah the, the, the books i think would come together a couple times in like one or two arcs where things would be big enough to where they bounce together, but then they spread out again. And so I think that's one of the cool things about it is I think there's this very believable background noise constantly happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting idea. Like that you could write it from the perspective of someone who was away on earth bed or something and like not even know about the fallen raid. Yeah. And it's not that the fallen raid wasn't important and didn't have consequences that had downstream effects. It's just, there's a lot of shit going on and that's that's fine that's how the world really is actually yeah Yeah. and i mean part of the warden's goals with all the shit going on is to keep it out of everyday life as much as possible like we people are trying to rebuild they're trying to move on they're trying to start get their second chance and they don't need to be constantly aware of the the worst threats that are happening and i think um the the text has done a really good job of pushing it out of that spotlight Mm. yeah i think so um, but also you could argue that was part of the problem though, is that they're treating this stuff that way and they're trying to get, they're trying to settle down to normalcy right away without actually dealing with any of the underlying issues, but just hiding them. So, I mean, you could say that's, that was a bad call by the wardens as well. I think it's really interesting to, to think about because I'm not sure what they should have done differently. And yet I, I also have had that same thought mm-hmm. where, where it's, it, it's like, what else should they have done? But also it's hard to escape the feeling that there's something they should have done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. Um, after, uh, we, we see dragon doing some battling, all the big shots begin to arrive for like this big meeting breakthrough arrives and at least and Terry's among everybody here is still standing tall. Mm-hmm. And I think like these two chapters, uh, have some really great, like what Victoria seems like from the outside moments. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, I, I love like it, this works here because like, of course, Victoria is going to have poise and be standing tall because that was just drilled into her from a young age of like just being, I think it's so funny. We, Taylor as a person that was like perpetually unaware of how she's being perceived by others right. to Victoria, who is just like constantly a hundred percent aware of her perception to others. Um, but I also like to, I want to read more into this and say, yes, this is part of her awareness of how she has to present herself. But also I'm like, maybe part of this is also the newfound strength she found through her acceptance is is making this standing tall a little bit easier for Victoria. And I don't know if there's anything to support that, but, but I like it. I don't think you're reading too much into it. Cause I had the same thought, honestly, that, that like at first I was like, yep, that's, that's Victoria. She's always like this. And then I was like, I don't think she is always like this. I think that, I think that, especially lately she's been crushed by Mm -hmm. by circumstances and and if anything if she's standing up straight here it's because she has this renewed um self-confidence and self-acceptance yeah that that was totally where my head went sure i I really like this moment where (laughs) dragon looks and says no lookout dragon was secretly glad she had harbored concerns the team would go talk to lookout and return with the child in tow and i read that and i was like 
yeah, probably, because that's what's happened literally every time throughout this entire book. It's like, oh, Kenzie did it bad. We better go talk to her. Did you, And then she shows up and Kenzie's there and is like, well, did you punish her? Uh, well, I mean. Uh, like, yeah, we, we had a stern yeah, talking like, to. Yeah, we, we talked. And then she was like, well, you promised that you wouldn't bench me. And we were like, yeah, you're right. OK, yeah. come on. <laughs> We really shouldn't have promised that. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. I mean, I, I do. I do think like what this does, like just like structurally is is reinforce the idea that breakthrough telling Kenzie she can't come and sticking to it and Kenzie sticking to the acceptance of that fact is notable. Like we have breakthrough say, oh, shoo. Um, and it's drawing specific attention to it to remind you that, yeah, that's a big deal that that happened. That's a big deal. And it, it should be treated as such. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. Um, cool. Um, oh, so, so uh, there's yeah. also there's also this part where Victoria thanks Dragon for the gun. And I just really liked it because she's like, thanks for the gun. Um, but I also like she says here about the gun. I don't think I'd be where I am right now if not for the ability to pull back, be objective and survey the situation. And. Look, I think that's generally true just from a literal standpoint, like she had the gun, so she wasn't flying right in and punching things. She was staying back and observing the battlefield a little bit more. But I wonder if she's also speaking like more metaphorically as well as that, like the experience of being that person, that far back person allowed her to get to the objectivity needed to get to the point at the love crystal where she Mm -hmm. came to that moment of acceptance. Um, I I think I think it. I think it helped. I think honestly, it might have like kept her alive because yeah, yeah, just literally because she was not dead. Yeah, I like that because um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking I don't have everything sequenced out perfectly in my head, but like uh, the the times that she didn't have the gun were the times where she got her foot crushed when she was prying her body under the armor panels of Titan Scotty. And then when she got stabbed by an Ophion needle because she just randomly decided to literally attack Ophion with her with just her her hands. Um, So these are two like borderline suicidal attacks that she that she did that she barely got out of uh, both times terribly injuring one of her legs, interestingly enough. Yeah. Um, And uh, so having the gun gave her like literally the ability to just not not. Uh, or, or an excuse, perhaps, to just not keep throwing herself into these suicidal um, hand-to-hand situations with building-sized monsters. Yeah. So, like, the apology gun. It, guns do save lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, that's Thank you. You made my day, Scott. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Okay. Um, so, uh, while Victoria talks over some details with Dragon... Uh, many of which set up the conversation with Bonesaw that we're about to witness. Chris accidentally steps on Thunderdome, uh, who is a cape who is here, who has just been injured and then learned that her entire old team has died and is having a rough time. Yeah, I mean, like these are like the the coolest thing about the structure of this chapter, Matt, is we have these moments like this where Chris does a thing and he's just more Chris being Chris. And the first time you read this, you're just like, oh, look, Chris is being an asshole again. And. There, but there's there's some there's something about it as well. There's something about the the writing here that like the book like stops to pay really close attention to this. Like Chris does his thing. He pisses someone else off. 
Like there's this this back and forth almost fight where like Victoria's like, Chris, stop it. I'm so sorry. I apologize for my ex teammate. I love the changes. That's yeah. great. Like I it's not I apologize. I apologize for my ex teammate. Right. Um that's really great. And and it's almost as if like Wildbo is trying to get you to pay extra special attention to this moment. It's not just like a casual, like oh, Chris being Chris moment. It is it. And we learn later, this is part of this long seamer cause and effect chain that she's using. And so we, we learn after the fact that this moment has more weight to it than we thought it originally did. But, um, it works in the moment as just a little uh, roll your eyes at Chris oopsie. And, and, and it like, you, you're a little impressed by the fact that dragon is like, immediately like conscious of how bad that is and is like really trying very hard to to smooth it over um and so it works on that surface level but then you get the background information later which is heartbreaking i kind of want to talk about that now rather than interrupting the flow later like this idea that like I, i love the juxtaposition of chris like accidentally you know bumping into her and then being like very very like intentionally rude like oh you're 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 so short i i almost i didn't see you there um because it, it like just being very very rude and then you realize later like what he was thinking was like um that that it's this complicated thing about finding her attractive and then only being able to find her attractive because she had nothing to she, she had nothing in common with his sister yeah who, who yeah. fucked him up so bad and and then like being so resentful of of that whole mess that he just kind of shuts his mind off and it's like god so it's so sad it, yeah. be, being being chris and and it's all covered up by this like uh you know i'm I, i'm an asshole type type external um external image but but inside he's just so like uh, he's in so much pain really yeah and i wonder like if we had seen this through chris's perspective i wonder if his internal narrative would have been conscious enough to even go through those feelings to Mm -hmm. where we could read them you know Uh, we'll never we'll probably never find out but it's just a really interesting like thought experiment it's like if if this was a chris chapter would he have like done all that mental like thinking Mm -hmm. uh as text or not i don't know yeah i kind of lean toward yes but um but I, i i like the idea that it it might very well have been a kind of subliminal impression that that nonetheless stuck with him i I do enjoy that Mm -hmm. idea yeah so um like as an aside i mean once again i love dragon's narration because she'll just kind of like glance at something like glance at at thunderdome and then get like this fully annotated rundown of everything having to do with thunderdome yeah yeah. and then and then act perfectly with full awareness of all that context and uh, it's just a it's a fun it's a fun idea i i I totally agree i mean it it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier with this idea of how the point of view is accurately depicting someone who has human like emotions like love kindness worry these kind of quintessentially like alive traits um but also just processes the world in a way that's entirely different from how we do yeah Um, it's it's really cool yeah Yeah. um i do there there is a point that i just wanted to kind of go back to real quick as dragon is talking to Thunderdome and, and trying to make her feel a little bit better. Uh, they, they mentioned the idea of it's a bad time for grudges and, and Thunderdome looks over at Chris as she says that. And we see this moment where dragon like says, yeah, it might be. And then 
uh, she pulls up an image of Saint hanging out in his jail cell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like this is just something I think we've seen a lot across this arc and we'll see more in this chapter. This idea of old rivalries, old grudges um, being tossed aside right now because it's not important now. Um, I mean, we had Moonsong and Tristan did their whole thing. Victoria and Amy kind of Brian with Bonesaw. Um, in last chapter, um, I, I just think like that is something that seems the text seems to be drawing attention to is that like it's just like we can't worry about this stuff anymore. You have to yeah. accept you have to accept what happened. Right. I, I think that's the key. Like to say to say what's happened between Amy and Victoria. It's like it's it's not that they like it's not that there was this like healing. It's that yeah. it's that they've accepted it's that Victoria at least has accepted that there won't be. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, and Amy has as well, yeah, I think. I think you're right. I mean, I I really hope so at least. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the briefing starts and uh our attention is then forebodingly drawn to Dinah. Yeah, but I I think this is one of those ways in which the structure of the chapter really works in its favor because like as as it moves to Dinah, she like closes her eyes and the section stops and moves on and and I think the first time you read it it's just super foreboding because you're like what does that mean? Why does she close her eyes? What's going on? What's she, she's using her power. What's she doing? Um, and then it becomes clear after the fact and near the end of the chapter that the reason why we break away from the section at this point is because Dinah just used her power and the Seamurk's um, prediction modeling breaks down when Dinah is using her power. So we can't see the events of the next part of this anymore. And we move on to another link in the art cause and effect chain. Yep. Which is Bonesaw. Um, interestingly, not Riley, but Bonesaw. Yeah. In in both the section header header and uh, the self the self description. Mm-hmm. Um, and more more fun sci fi shit. This is just <laughs> my favorite. Um, I love her little hyper paranoid garden of biological horrors, including multiple clones of herself to serve as decoys and distractions while she hides with an extinction tier weapon. Jesus. Yeah, it's like so sad, right? Like Bonesaw was a character who made it through Worm almost better off like than she was at the start of it, you could argue, right? Like yeah. she broke she broke free of Jack. She kind of discovered and redefined herself as Riley and and she was seemingly working towards being a better person. And then this is I mean, as you said it, it's Bonesaw. The the heading is Bonesaw. It's pure bone saw. I mean, mm-hmm. like there's maybe just a little bit less of the sadistic glee that we saw in early worm bone saw, but all the, the, the threat of the severe bio tinkering stuff has returned with a vengeance here. And it's all like the, the thing that breaks my heart is it's all rooted in fear. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fear. Like she says, she's not going to become like what Contessa is. And she's making sure that's not going to happen. It's fear of being tricked. It's fear of being betrayed. It's fear of getting hurt. Um, it's just it's so sad and I don't think it's fair to like blame Jessica outright for what happened to Riley like I'm sure that there was some backsliding going on before Jessica strangled her but it's just really it's just really sad to see like she's she's stayed out here on her own and this is the result of it yeah it's um uh, my mind makes the connection between her and and Brian actually in that they're both people who are motivated by like by fear fundamentally by yeah. by by PTSD of, of 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 a similar kind I would say actually like yeah yeah she's she's sort of endlessly reinforcing her her safeguards and protections and and then when we saw him he was 
surrounding himself in his darkness and, and hiding and she's yeah. literally hiding too like when people come they have to go through this ridiculous ritual of petting a frog while she <laughs> hides and yeah. um it's all uh it's very it's a very similar idea that she she gave him that trauma but fundamentally she has a very similar trauma yeah yeah i mean it's she's she's tony stark and iron man 3 building this infinite iron man suits yeah except they're like squishy and they, they say things to her and yeah um, they, and they, they suffer could, in, and they could cause an inst- in, <laughs> extinction level event. <laughs> Dear God, I like that. We don't have we don't know anything about like what what the nature of that would be. We're just like it's it's a little thing in her in her gun that can it just is extinction. OK, Yay. yeah, great. Um, Yeah, so uh, I love this. Uh, she tilted her face skyward as she felt a fibril go against the current of her jugular to reach up to her brain. She'd added more nerve endings to the interior of her skull to be better aware of any work she did in there, and she could feel it finding its way. Jesus. Yeah, and then right after this part, she has like a, a three nanosecond seizure uh-huh. as there's a, a, like a, a gap between when everything connects up. Like, look, I love body horror. I love this shit to death. It's so delightfully gross and wonderful. And I, it, I know I need to read Twig. I know. I know. I know. I got to finish Pact first. But I love this. I love it. Yeah. Um, it's it's all just so crammed in here. Um, yeah. Honorable mention to the suckle gun and the peel darter, which which has a, just such a cute name for being a gun <laughs> that peels you. Yeah. Uh, all, all the names are perfect. Like the, the ear pod thing that's talking to her is named Podrick. <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, it's 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 charming. It is. Um, I guess uh, uh, Nilbog rubbed off on her a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So Riley conducts a conversation with Sarah uh, and a masked, uh, sorry, sorry, I don't know why I said that, an unnamed man uh, by proxy through her programmed clone because too dangerous to go in in person. Mm -hmm. Um, And they do manage to pass muster despite her extreme paranoia. Yeah, I love it. We we followed the instructions we were given. We pet the toad. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, I mean, we really could just dwell on the adventures of isolated, paranoid Riley for ages. Yeah, I mean, there's like a, like a, 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 short story here yes of just I, like a day in the life of of bone saw yeah as, as she goes about tending to all of her monstrosities and yeah and yeah that's yeah that's great yeah i um, mean like like it I, it's fun and i love it and it's delightfully gross but i just have to reiterate it just makes me sad it just makes me so sad she's all all alone out here it's just her with her clones that she can't even quite get to speak correctly and her her airpods that just talk in grunts to her you know, as I'm reading something like this, I am constantly switching back, like very rapidly switching back and forth between like what a what a sad, you know, state to be in and, and like, oh, this is just so fun and creative. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I and, mean, it can be both, right? Like it yeah. doesn't have to it, it doesn't have to just be one thing. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I I get I, I I'm on record as as admitting that I get a lot of enjoyment out of just like how fucked up things can get in in parahumans. Yeah. And it's like very often terrible things happen in the characters we love and I'm just like that was great mm-hmm. because I felt something. <laughs> That's called fiction, man. You yeah. don't have to feel yeah. bad about feeling something yeah, cuz yeah, they're yeah. not real. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I like this. I, I like. I like this. I mean, this is one of those things which I think does make you feel a little, a little pang because mm-hmm. uh, he's watching. Uh, she's watching the man uh, who who came with Sarah. The man hurried to get his gear out. 
He hadn't wet himself, it seemed. A small part of her was disappointed. It was hard to put that part away after it had lived with her for all this time. And I mean, yeah, it just it reminds you how interesting of a character she is yeah. in, a, in a context of recovery and change and acceptance. Because like, how do you recover from being Bonesaw? How do you recover from being a monster for years and doing all the things that she did? And and like the last time that she was anything other than Bonesaw was when she was like a small child, yeah, basically. Yeah. Right. So like what does recovery even mean in that context? And I mean, I, I think, I think the story has given us a lot of interesting kind of uh, lenses and, and ideas for, for looking at that question. Um, one of them be, probably being literally Bonesaw because we've been thinking about her for some time. Um, but just, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, uh, thing. It's a fantastic challenge to be faced with, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the cool thing is what Kenzie shows us is what happens when you're like overly obsessed with connection. Riley, shows us what happens when you're so terrified of them, you disconnect and flee from them all. Um, and this, this is kind of, this is kind of what it is. And, and the the interesting thing for me is yes, she's regressed in some ways. Yes. She's like, like on the verge of causing an extinction. Um, but she still does end up helping, right? Like at the end of the day, like she, she's willing to work with them and accepts the call. And we don't know what the result of that's going to be yet. Although the Seamberg seems to think she does. Um, but it, like she is willing to help. So like there's still a little bit of the Riley we saw at the very beginning of the book in there, I think. And and I think even this, the, the statement that you just read about like, like a part of her was disappointed shows that like she's still battling within herself. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that's, that's maybe the, the point of it is she's battling this part of herself, but like, but like what, what is the core of Riley that she's trying to get back to? Like, that's, that, that's more what I mean is like, it's not like it's like a, a bad thing happened to her and now she's trying to get back to where she was. She almost has to invent a whole new self to be who is not Bonesaw and mm-hmm. is some new thing where she, she has not been that thing yet. Yeah. And I think that's a really cool idea. Yeah. Um, one thing you said, like, I, I wasn't actually entirely clear on the idea that she, um, agreed to help i mean she agreed to she agreed to join the call with with the heroes but i I wasn't clear that she had actually uh, agreed to help them well um, i mean i think i think not killing the people that are here to see you immediately and and agreeing to to speak with people like yeah she's not like said sign me up coach I'll, i'll i'll meet you on the field but she's at least willing to hear them out okay yeah i i i agree with that in that case cool um i love so this is the this is the quote that I tried to do earlier <laughs> from, from Neo Sarah. Uh, she says, if we don't extend the benefit of a doubt, then all you have left are the benefits of being dubious, which I'm just going to have to practice saying it because I want to adopt that as a saying in my life. But apparently I don't know how to say it because I can't speak. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's kind of poetic in a way, right? Like the, yeah. the benefits of being dubious. Yeah. I, I love that. And I, I like, Again, we have to say that the only reason this is happening is because Brian extended the benefit of the doubt to to Bonesaw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so like I feel like benefit of the doubt is just a thing that keeps coming up in this book. Right. Like who is and is not worthy of getting the benefit of the doubt in what situations and who are the people that that decide that or not. And here we have Riley. She's isolated. She's paranoid. She's building bioweapon after bioweapon constantly extinction level of weapons and we have these characters saying 
we trust you. We're willing to extend you the benefit of the doubt. And that could end up being the difference between, you know, humanity surviving or not. Yeah. And right. I, I find that fascinating. I, I do too. I mean, I think there've been situations in the story so far where failing to give somebody the benefit of the doubt has led to, for example, them going Titan. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that, I think, I think it's a good sign overall. Like you said earlier, if it turns out that it was just a, a horrible choice to contact Bonesaw, then I'll be, I'll be, I guess, confused. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Um, so yeah, then switching over to the Seamurg who, uh, God help us. We, uh, we thought might actually be on the side of the good guys at some point. If you'll remember earlier in the story. Yeah. Remember um, that? Yep, she's planning to turn the whole world into an endless vortex of violence that lasts billions of years. Yeah, hey, I think we forgot that there it's called an end bringer. Uh-huh. It's an end bringer. Uh-huh. uh-huh. We messed well, up. In we this case, she's more like the end stretcher outer into Yeah, we into need just names. hell. Yeah. Yeah. The end perpetuator. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. We did it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, she plans to continue the cycle in her own way, or maybe like a better way of putting it would be to put the cycle into like a holding pattern that can wait until another entity comes along generating and harvesting conflict all the while. Yeah. I mean, like you imagine like, uh, Joe entity swings by like 4 billion years later <laughs> and it's like, Hey, what's, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This... Look at all this data. Yeah. Well. This is, this is this is beautiful this is so much data i love the data yeah yeah uh that's funny uh so yeah the idea that the endbringers each had their own specific functions and that hers is to sort of take control as the situation winds down makes a lot of sense and i think it's fun yeah a, a lot of her thoughts are cryptic to me though um and maybe they're supposed to be but like the idea that she's creating a nemesis to go to war against her own creator um who is her creator? Is Idolan? Is that what she's talking about, or or does she mean she's creating a nemesis to go to war against her? Is that is, is that the the correct reading? I, um, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the nemesis was for her specifically. Okay. I, yeah. I, I I got you. Yeah, I think I just did not read correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what it she's is. She's going to war with her creator, and in order to in order to make sure that it's interesting enough, she's creating a nemesis. Um, uh, because the, because it specifically says the nemesis will free people. The nemesis will disrupt the system she's trying to create here and cause more chaos cause, to, to keep it. Like if everything's just like flat torture, boring, um, I, it has get, to have some, some, it's some randomness. Yeah. Matt, it's, it's, it's a matrix. She's making the matrix. Uh-huh. So the creator is it's Jesus. It's the one. Yeah. Um, she's going to make or the nemesis is rather, and to just get the illusion of hope. And a little bit of chaos to mix things up deals with the unbalanced equation. That's basically uh-huh. what she's doing. This is the 13th uh, instantiation. Of, exactly. Uh, I, I guess I'm still not 100% sure because she, she thinks about her own creator, right? Unless the nemesis. Yes. Is, she, she is like, so she has two functions. Function number one is what you talked about with like the, her ability to like manage the end of the cycle, uh-huh. right? Um, as the cycle winds down she can take control but she's not just programmed with that she's also programmed to go to war with her creator which i think we can assume at least is idolan um because going to war with her creator was a specific function of all the end bringers right so like 
here's what I'm assuming happened. All these Endbringers are based on shard stuff that had its own cyclical purpose, but then also Idolin inadvertently repurposed them for his stuff as well. And so they're basically running two, uh, two goals at the same time. Mm-hmm. Goal number one, their pre programmed shard function. Goal number two, fight me. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. It also maybe partially explains why she actually fought Scion, um, because she's not actually anti-entity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she she it's not that she it's not that she didn't want the cycle to complete. It's that her role was to sort of like battle test yeah everything, and it just so happens that she did too too good of a job and actually won. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like the, the, I think the most, the reason why this is a little bit confusing here is because we kind of start the section 30 years into the future, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, it starts 30 years from now, a baby's going to be born. It's basically like the, the Ziz antichrist. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and he's going to be terrible and awful and pre-programmed to just be one of the worst human beings ever. And it'll tie into the, the world that she's trying to create. Um, she's going to also, she's created a nemesis that will help make that whole thing interesting. So there's a Jesus there. And then she has that set up and she says, this is the ideal. This is what I want. And now we're going to walk back down the chain to the present to show how we're going to knock over the last two dominoes to get to that future in which a child will be born that will be bad Mm -hmm. yeah exactly that that's that's the that's the idea here Mm -hmm. and um and then we get into the nitty-gritty because um the seamurg has actually set up intentionally set up a lot of the stuff that we just saw in this chapter and it's all been leading up to her intended target of just getting the right sequence of messages Mm -hmm. uh to cryptid uh cryptid is is made to feel his isolation his alienation and then he's reminded of his bird forms and this is all calculated. Yeah. And we see we see how everything we've seen over the course of this chapter links up to it. And we kind of see it in reverse order. Like we go first to the Riley interaction. Um, then we go uh, to to the Thunderdome interaction and how all that works. And then lastly, we go to the bird. And, and the so it's like we're, we're doing it in reverse of the way the chapter played out to us the first time. Yeah. Um, and of course, what it's basically saying, though, is that inexplicably, Chris being on the board matters because the Seamurg is taking a lot of effort to knock down dominoes that end with Chris getting off the board. So the key to the entire fucking universe might rely on Breakthrough's ability to convince Chris not to do that thing. Uh-huh. I think I think you're right. That's that's the idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I I just like I love I love this so much. Like the structure of this chapter, I love it. It's like it's like we peel back an onion and then we like like wrap the onion together again at the uh-huh. in in reverse at the end. Like yeah. it's just it's just so fulfilling like to to start with this random like uh, literally a random bird and you're just like what 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 is yeah this? i mean it literally says random in the thing like it's not right. it's just a random bird and they're like what does that have to do with anything and then by the end of it you see that that's that's everything <laughs> yeah um I, I mean it's fun because obviously everything made sense the first time through but then like it takes on this whole horrible connotation of of like oh no um the, right. the second time or 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 when when you think back over it and you're like oh everything that we thought was was this was actually this and uh yeah it's it's fun yeah yeah um so i think maybe the only little shred of hope here is that dinah's use of her power makes um quote unquote seeing the following events difficult 
but I mean, not much hope because Seamurg is so utterly sure that Chris's trajectory is going to be as she intends. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, look, I think that's where the hope has to be, though, because like Dinah blocks the Seamurg from playing out that simulation. And then she's just like, well, I'm still like, oh, I can't see it. But like, come on, it's yeah. Chris. Come on, it's Chris. Like, hang on, come on, come on. Right. Um, and uh, this is not the first time Chris has fooled someone. We have to remember that he did pretty well it's with true. fooling goddess, though. Um, but there, there is this part that I want to pay attention to because I, like there, there's this moment where the Seamurg is playing over the cause and effect chain and mentions that there's going to be a moment when Riley in the conversation with breakthrough says, I kind of don't mind being on my own. And Chris is listening in on this conversation. And that's the thing that that she's trying to she was trying to set up that's why she flew out and killed the member of the flock that was supposed to go with sarah um that didn't end up going with sarah so it's some random guy and it makes riley feel a little bit more uncomfortable and a little bit more isolated and therefore she says this phrase but the interesting thing is this is not a phrase we heard in this chapter right this is something that technically has not occurred yet because the conversation between um the conversation between Riley and breakthrough has not happened yet. We haven't seen that conversation play out yet. So now we have this, this phrase that's been inserted in our mind by the text. I kind of don't mind being on my own. And so whatever happens in the next chapter, if we hear that phrase, it means something. If we get through that conversation and we don't hear that phrase, it means something. Um, and I think it's really clever. What Wildbo's done here is just insert that phrase in our heads. Um, and we, ha- and maybe we will see it play out. Maybe we won't, but I just, that stuck with me. I agree. I, I had the same thought that like, okay, this like, like I, I think it is going to be said. And then we're primed to like pay close attention to what happens right after that, to how Chris reacts and, right. and so forth. Right. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And, and look again, I'm super naive probably but I refuse to believe that Chris is going to let us down like this. Like it's clear that, that the over that Seamurg's <laughs> overconfidence is her weakness and my faith in my friend, Chris is not mine. Uh-huh. Don't let me down, buddy. Well, Bo would never make us sad. Yeah. But, okay. <laughs> Fair. But like, look, look, man, I, this I is my boy. You. I hear you. Look, I, I, I've wanted, I think this is kind of my my position this whole time about Chris is like he's a baby, he's a baby. Mm-hmm. He doesn't deserve all this, and I want I want the best for him. Even though he's done bad things, he's very, done very terrible things. things. He's he's done bad things, but he's a baby who had an evil monster downloaded into his brain, and I want the best for the baby. Maybe not for the evil monster, but the two come as a package. Unfortunately. And the baby still deserves his his, his chance, you know, yeah, his shot. I agree. I agree. Yeah. And he's not um, going to throw away that shot. He's not. <laughs> God. He's not going to do I under, it. I understood that reference. <laughs> um, so I thought this was pretty cool, actually. Um, uh, I'm just going to read this. The Titans under Titan, yeah, the Titans under Titan Fortuna's control mobilized to fight Dauntless, Fume Hood, and Titan Oberon. <laughs> so I love the names that were chosen, chosen yeah. by the Seamurg, by the way. Titan Fortuna and Titan Oberon, but Dauntless and Fumehood. Yep, 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 yep. So yep. good. Love it, love it, love it. Um, I think I think there's also, we have to note, like just the way she describes people in general, like Chris is not Chris, it's cryptid. 
But mm-hmm. Bonesaw, who in her own section was labeled Bonesaw through the CMERG, is called Riley Grace Davis, um, which I think that's very interesting, too. That Yeah. I don't know what that means, but it just it just stuck out to me. Doesn't doesn't she also call him Chris Elman at least once, though? But the, the, yeah, she I, might. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. But uh, yeah. that means she goes back and forth between the two of them, which is also interesting, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's maybe it means she doesn't have a very good read on him. It's a little, little subtext. Ooh, maybe it perhaps. does. Maybe yeah. it does. Um, cool. So the chapter wraps up with the Seamurg enumerating all the ways in which we're fucked and then heading to go fight the heroes. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, that's real scary, but I'm confident. I'm confident. I'm, don't let me down, Chris. Chris. Are you, are you jinxing it? No, are Chris, you, I'm it, talking to you. Chris, listen. Listen to me. Listen to me. You don't want to be a bird. I mean, yeah, like I read Animorphs too. Being a bird seems pretty cool. You don't want to be a bird, Chris. Be a a friend. Yeah. Transform into a the dog. monster form. Yeah, there you go. Be a dog. <laughs> be a dog. Yeah, if you Chris? transferred in, into like a, a chocolate retriever, chocolate lab, then then everything would be fine. Chris? Christopher? He hears you. <laughs> He's there. Don't let me down, buddy. He's not gonna say anything. All right. All right. Um, I think that's all we got for the chapters. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. <laughs> with with that, that being said, um, so the discussion question from last week was, what is the end game if not Amy? Uh, Grekel Prime says the end game is everybody coming to terms with being the Seamurgs playthings. Well, that's depressing. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Grekel. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Nugget Blaster's best guess is Chris. Good guess, Nugget Blaster. He hasn't done his big thing yet, and his arc seems incomplete. I agree. Once again, Chris? <laughs> Come on, buddy. Okay, go ahead. Um, oh, oh, my turn. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Matt, Master Wilhelm says the end game will be the heroes purposely making the vision of the Seamurg come true, at least in appearance. And they say this calls back to how Sion sought out a future in which he could see his counterpart alive, only to find her mangled, brain-dead remains. Um, yeah, that's... Uh, I think that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I think that's at least, like, what the idea was, what, what Victoria's idea was. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I don't know what form that's going to take. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, Sarah Penguin lists a few munchkin and plot-centric possibilities, like Gru using his powers on Jack to talk to the Titans, but... S- but says none of that is really the point. The point is the shards can be viewed as traumatized children who grew up in a violent environment and no longer need the coping skills they learned in that environment to thrive in the new one. Maybe they can try a less violent approach to solving the entropy problem. Yeah, I I like that. And this is actually something I forgot to talk about in the chapter discussion in general. So uh, sucks for all you who skipped the discussion question, but I wanted to talk to you about this real quick, Matt. Um, This idea that like we saw again and again, that like, Putting a, setting aside old, um, old rivalries, old grudges, um, old conflicts. We're seeing all our human characters make the choice to set those things aside. And then we have the Seamurg, who seems designed to perpetuate a system that is just the same shit over again, right? Like, we literally, she's going to create a nemesis so we can keep this kind of cops and robbers bullshit going. Um, this kind of, not entirely a game, because it's going to be worse than that, but, like, a, a simulation, a Matrix-like simulation, we're just going to keep the same thing happening again and again. And I think that's a really great way to 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 differentiate our antagonist from our protagonists in the way they're approaching 
their solution to the same problem. Yeah, I, I almost feel like we could have, if we had thought to, we could have predicted what the Seamurg's uh, goal was going to be based on the themes of just like, well, what's the opposite of what the good thing would be? Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, so Coinich says maybe Victoria's new aura power will help the Titans find acceptance and lead to reaching out and creating connections. Maybe better shard human connections will help the shards chill out and cooperate. I like it. I like the nonviolent approaches. Yeah. Um, Vice Versailles says that the end game isn't going to be anything along the lines of power munchkinry and the plan to judo fate isn't going to work. But the fiasco of the attempt will create a situation where Fortuna is asked a question and that question will prompt her to reflect, have a crisis and make a decision. I like it because it's specific. Like some people went a little more broad, but I like this is a specific prediction and I, I, I it feels good. It feels good. I like it. Yeah, I, I I feel like um, this is one where I can really see this happening because I, I you know um, I've heard the uh, a, a stated plan never actually works. That's mm-hmm. not that's not entirely true, but I think it's it's uh, it's kind of a good rule of thumb in fiction that if, if Victoria says, "Here's my plan. We're going to judo fate." Um, yeah, like what's a heist movie if everything works? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's a yeah, I, I like this idea a lot. Yeah. Wolf time Wolf Tamer 9 lists a bunch of theories including waste becoming a new hub, Victoria becoming a titan but then needing to regain her humanity and all of breakthrough going titan and then forging their own therapy shard network um which then uh, influences the other shards. Um and they say the good ending will turn out to have been the Seamurg's ending all along. Oh gosh. Uh, some uh, I I think the implication there is like it's all Seamer was a good guy all along, perhaps. Oh, yeah. I, I think that's. I didn't. I didn't encode that properly in my summary. But um, maybe this anyway. question was written before the latest uh, chapter came out. Ma- yeah, I think that this might answer, be the case. Rather. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it was. I think. Uh, I, I mean, a lot of these, like especially the one that I think uh, indicated Chris would be the um, uh, the key, was written before this chapter. So yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Lost Man 138 kind of agrees with Wolf Tamer and says that they look forward to God Emperor Victoria, the entity of mankind. Mm -hmm. I can't decide whether that would feel good to me or not, that ending. I mean, look, let's be honest here, Matt. This ending is going to be bittersweet. Like, that's just the way it's going to be. But just how sweet versus bitter. Mm -hmm. Like, is it like dark? Is it like like extra dark chocolate or like milk chocolate? Yeah, I feel like we've moved away from... um, the path where Victoria could have gone Titan. Like I just like, like based on the rules of how yeah. you go Titan, I just don't even know. Like she's too, she's doing too well now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I agree so, with that. Yeah. Uh, Daedalus Fallen says we've dealt with Vicky's trauma and it's time to deal with the entity's trauma, which is something like their fear of entropy and their ceaseless search for a fix to an impossible problem. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like mean, this w- idea. One thing that's still kind of hovering around is, what rain said to fortuna right like the the, mm-hmm. the, the idea of acceptance that he kind of channeled to her and and we saw that it kind of like caused pause um but the fortuna titan is still actively fighting the other titans we just talked about that so like it didn't th- there's there's possibly a war still going on in her um mm-hmm. and so the idea of acceptance for shards seems to fit that pretty well mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah um alamancer says they have no idea no idea yeah good answer good answer i mean i'm i'm kind of i'm kind of there with you i could probably just spit something out if i wanted to but right 
I mean, I, that's the problem is I like a lot of these ideas. I'm like, yeah, I could totally see five of these, which are all incompatible. Um, so <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sandwich says it all hinges on Torso. Torso will headbutt the Seamurg into Fortuna and destroy both. I mean, he is the only one powerful enough to take them both down. I, I, this is my favorite theory now. Yeah, there we go. The Torso theory. And last but certainly not least, we have Farm Fresh Hornets, who is also on Team Chris. I think Chris is going to be instrumental to the way things shake out. We've seen him beat Precognition before. Bianca's Danger Sense. Yeah, good. Uh, and Ziz's interlude spent about an inordinate amount of time gloating about how he couldn't possibly deviate from the path she laid for him. So that's a big potential sign that he's going to deviate from the path. <laughs> he's the member of breakthrough who spent the most time fighting his better impulses, running off to shin and playing warlord instead of admitting he cares for his friends. I think it would be really fitting if he comes to accept the hero he can be with the help of his team that or dream room stuff with like capes and a clown car. Yeah. I, I quoted the whole answer there because it, it was detailed and I was like, yeah, I mean, um, uh, uh, doyalistically, uh, the, there are a lot of elements that have been laid out over the course of the story that, that would suggest that if anybody was going to, um, out, outsmart or, or whatever, a, uh, a, a, a precog, um, or a, uh, or, or a whatever, a danger sensor, then it would be Chris. So I, I like this, this notion. I yeah, I mean, so. I, I that that realization while I was prepping that, oh, wait, we've done this before with Chris uh, was mm -hmm. a really exciting one. So I'm glad Farm Fresh Hornets picked that up as well, because that, yeah. I think I think that we'll, we can look back at maybe at the end of this book and be like, ah, that's when that was, you know, cleverly set up for us that he's been able to do this before. Yep, I agree. And I hope we see that. Mm -hmm. All right. Next week's discussion question is who are your favorite siblings in parahumans? I, I I love this question, Matt. Because we had, I mean, the the reason for it, in case it's not immediately clear, is that we we had a uh, uh, Aisha and then a Brian interlude. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, there are a lot of siblings in yeah. the parahumans world. I can think of many off the top of my head, and I Capra, like. We got the Capra Bros. We got. I mean, we we even have Fenya and Menya. We've got the the Heartbroken. We've got. Uh, there's, there's a bunch, there's a bunch. Mm -hmm. So tell us about your favorite and tell us why. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. And that's all we've got for you this week on we've got ward. You guys are all part of this show. So feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. You can reach out to us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or over on our Twitter account at gotwormpod. That is where you can find our live readings of the 10 remaining chapters of this book. I don't know if that's true or not, but <laughs> I'm going to say it. You're going to sound really impressive when you're right. <laughs> um, uh, my yeah. personal Twitter is at scottdaily85 and Matt's is at mordinamail. Mordinamail. Yep. Mor I mean, you know, it's a made up word. But then again, <laughs> then again, you know, all, all words are made up. Why can't, why can't you just at Matt Freeman? Because I'm there's like literally a billion Matt Freemans at Matt Freeman, a billion and one. OK. All right. I'll try that. I'll try that one, Scott. OK. Um, if you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play and pretty much anywhere else in the world. You can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find this and all the other shows we do over at our website. That's doofmedia.com. Uh, this week, it's book club week. So we are going to be talking about Blake Crouch's recursion on Friday night. 
Uh, it was a fun book to read, and I think it's going to be a fun book to talk about. Um, it's not quite as dense of a book as we normally talk about, so I think it's going to be maybe a more relaxed conversation. It's not as long either, so we don't have to fit a lot of text into a short amount of time. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. I'm really looking forward to that. It's it's a complicated book, but um, yeah, I, mean, I, I think yeah, like if you want to get all sciency about it, <laughs> you just enjoy it. Well, well, no, I mean, no spoilers. So yes, <laughs> um, yeah, and if you like um, the book club, this show, or any of the other shows on the Doof Network, and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/DoofMedia. Supporting us on Patreon at the $20 per month level gets you the power to force me and Scott to watch a movie or short story of your choice and do an episode of it uh, about it on our other uh, podcast, The Doofcast. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, of course, if if you're not up for 20 bucks, there are lower levels, um, which will all let you uh, attend uh, our Discord chat and vote in our quarterly fan art and occasional costume contests. And as always, while you're over there on Patreon, make sure you go to patreon.com slash wildbow as well and donate to him because this is his world and we're just playing in it. Yeah, and we mentioned last week that we were really close to our next Patreon goal. And uh, I just looked at it and we hit it. So thank you to everyone who made that happen. Um, so we're going to be making an announcement on Patreon as far as what that uh, show that we mentioned on there is going to look like. Um, it's a video game focused thing that Elliot is working on. And I think we're very excited for it here in the, the, the doof squad. So um, thank you to everyone that supports us, especially, especially uh, Bidoof's Colin W doof dancers, Taliba and Nick L doof trooper, a bird, <laughs> not a random bird, a very particular this bird, a very specific bird and doof warrior, Josh, Welcome, everyone, and, and thank you for upgrading. Those of you who upgraded, we really appreciate yeah. it. We do. We do. You guys are, are incredible. Um, for, I, I think, yeah, we, so at our $20 level, we're doing a new thing, Matt. You want to talk about that? Sure. Um, we're doing a thing called the Council of Doof. Um, basically, we wanted something for our those patrons that are uh, pledging to us at the $20 level continuously, month to month, uh, instead of just once to get their reward. We wanted to give them something back in order to thank them for continually pledging at that amount. So we are starting a new thing called the Council of Doof, which is basically just we're going to take another episode of Doofcast and let that group of people that pledge at that amount to collectively select a show for us. So they're going to get to to, you know, uh, nominate something people can second other people's nominations and then everyone's going to get to vote and the the movie with the most votes wins and then we'll talk about it on the show we're starting that next month um so you if you are at that level right now you should have gotten a patreon message about it to tell you how it all works um but it's never been a better time to join that level because not only do you get to pick something but you also get to pick other things yeah i believe the voting for the you know the next uh not necessarily the next episode but uh, a, a a upcoming Doofcast episode is already underway and people are nominating and and um, it looks looks like it's going to be fun. Um, yeah, yeah. I think we uh, this is something we've been wanting to do for a long, long time. We really felt like we wanted to get back to the people that stay at that level after we've done their show. And I think it was a cool idea we've come up with to do that. And I hope those of you at that level really enjoy it. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. I, like the patron produced episodes, Matt, are some of the most fun I have because like it's stuff I never would have watched yeah a lot of times and yeah uh, i don't know I, I really like it me too me too all right that's enough of that um 
after oh, saying all those nice things about the people that donate, let's say some nice things about all you out there that just listen to us because we like you a whole lot too. Um, you can help us out by downloading this episode, which are su- presumably you've already done that. Thanks. Um, yeah. Thank you. But you can also share it with people, you know, I, I know this book is coming to an end, but I think there's a lot of people out there that have been like waiting for war to end before they really start reading it because they don't want to read it serially. Um, and maybe while they're starting up, you can be like, Hey, here's a podcast to listen to while you're doing that. Uh, it's, it's really long, but it's, it's good. <laughs> so you can share it. Um, or you can leave us rating and reviews on Apple podcasts or stitcher. So thank you to all those who do that and who have done that in the past. We appreciate you. Um, it's, we don't really advertise that much. We're trying to do some advertising, but we don't really do it that much. So we rely on you guys a lot and you have not let us down. So thank you so much. Yeah, we really appreciate that too. Well, that's all we've got for you this week. Next week, do we begin the final arc? We'll see. Chris? Chris? Chris?